Hi, this is Rainy G. Haven't heard from me in a long time. Um, I've been fighting, fighting, fighting for my country. And uh, still am. And putting in a pool at the same time so that I, my poor little broken legs from, from the military have something to go in to make them feel a little better. Anyway, point is, I'm back now and we have about 63 days before there's an election that's going to change the country one way or the other. We are fighting communism versus globalism. We're fighting uh, the left versus right, but we're really fighting for America either up or down, which is something Ronald Reagan said. If we make the wrong choice on November 8th, America will cease to exist. And I don't want to tell my kids and grandkids and their kids and all that, I don't want to tell them why. I don't want to tell them that we let 40 or 50 years go by where we just let them silently take over and uh, push us towards this global governance from the UN, etc. So anyway, I wrote a couple books, and um, Amazon is now going political, of course, because Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, works for Obama. And uh, so my books come out, and they get a bunch of reviews all at once, and that raises a red flag, and so they took most of the reviews off. And if you if you put my name in there, I don't even think you find the books. You have to actually put the book titles and my name um, because they're political. Because I have some things to say about uh, how we got to where we are and um, about Hillary Clinton. So <clears throat> those are the two books. One is called America. It was just an idea. That's based on uh, a personal journey into politics going all the way back to actually um, even before my birth but right up to the present and then there's Hillary Clinton and I changed the title to lock her up Hillary Clinton in a nutshell so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read to you just a couple pages from each book so that you can see that you need to go out and get these because after November 8th they're obsolete anyway they don't count for anything um, but it might help you help others figure out the right answer to who they're, who they're going to vote for. It might help you find out or figure out why you are where you are today, why you're thinking the way you are today. I've gotten a lot of hate mail. I've gotten a lot of um, uh, threats in some ways. But <laughs> So you know what side I'm on because the, uh, the, the side that I, uh, I am on doesn't make those kind of threats and, and do that kind of thing. So anyway, here's Locker Up, Hillary Clinton in a nutshell. Hillary Rodham Clinton. Hillary Clinton, an icon among many women, many Democrats, socialists, and communists, is as much a cult figure as Barack Obama was, but of a different color and gender. She's human, aging, and has a dream of being the first woman president of the United States. I don't blame her. She was the real president in the White House while her husband partied and signed documents. She had to forgive and forget his infidelities and live through his impeachment. She had to move to New York to find her niche among liberals and set her sights on the highest office in the world. She had to take orders from George Soros and step aside for the greater good, to let Barack Obama make history before she did, legally or not. She's been a woman trapped in the 60s, as are so many of her peers, pretending to be working for the people while lining their own pockets and becoming more elite and privileged. I understand where she came from. Though I was raised a Republican, my vote, had I been of age, would have gone to John Kennedy. I was a Marine during the unpopular Vietnam War, and though I proudly saluted my flag every day, I was also feeling the emotions of the anti-war movement. 
Actually, there are no people more against any war than those who serve us in the military and put their lives on the line. When I finished my tour of duty, I went to work for a corporation and also got involved in women's studies, totally unaware I was part of corporate America at the same time I was part of a Marxist feminist program. I didn't learn my lesson until I purchased a new car for cash and was promptly told I needed to loan that car to anyone and everyone because that was the socialist way. Like Hillary, my community was my family, so I tried to follow their ideology. I loaned my car, got it back destroyed, and was told they hoped I had insurance. I wondered why they wouldn't share the cost of repairs I had to share the valuable asset that was mine. I didn't realize that they were the university elite, and I was, as Stalin said, the useless idiot. He actually said useful, but I was useless at that point. So I get where Hillary comes from. The big difference is, I never lied or cheated or stole anything. I maintained my integrity, and most importantly, I remembered my roots and the roots of my ancestors. I remembered what the founders meant when they risked their lives and fortunes to forge documents that would constitute the greatest experiment and country in the world. I've studied Hillary since Arkansas, through Whitewater, through her sudden fortunes in the market. I didn't vote for the Clintons, but I remember their rally song. I didn't want to stop thinking about tomorrow, but I wanted yesterday to be remembered and cherished. I studied her health care plan and knew it wasn't right for America. I watched her fail time and again, and then used Bill's charm to fade away to the background. I watched her move to New York and set up housekeeping. Nothing but a play to run for senator. She used her gender and false celebrity to win, and I knew right then her next stop was back to the White House. She'd been the woman behind the man, and there was no way she was going to let history remember her that way. As a student of Saul Alinsky's and a friend of George Soros, she got the financial backing to take on the presidential election. The problem was she'd have to face the diversity that feminists and radicals were fighting for and back down against a black man so as not to lose that election. I'm sure she was promised a Secretary of State position, not because she would be good at it, but because it would take her to all the countries she and Bill needed to amass their millions, give her the contacts she needed for the future, and secure enough data on leaders around the globe so any chance of stifling her mission would be met with threat of blackmail or worse. Sure, Greenspan did a great job for Bill Clinton with the economy, even if the Federal Reserve was empty, but Bill's foreign policy and White House parties got the best of him and also the best of her. Her mistakes and false ideology during her tenure as Secretary of State have caused chaos throughout the Middle East. Her poor judgment on running guns from Libya to Syria cost four American lives, made the Clinton Foundation a lot of money, and is something she'll deny being responsible for until her deathbed. And now she is again running for president. Though there is much evidence that she won the nomination through fraud and deceit, she needed and wanted that moment when all saw her, except the moment that many believe made history, and the adoration of many believe she's capable just because she's a woman. That's part of the introductory chapter. I'm going to read you from another chapter so you'll see where we're going. Um, the second chapter is basically listing things like uh, she and her state department are the reason a U.S. ambassador was killed in Benghazi, with the death, deaths of four Americans, including sitting U.S. Ambassador J. Christopher Stevens during the attacks in Benghazi, Libya. The State Department initially described this incident as a spontaneous one when it was actually planned and premeditated. Many suspect the State Department's desire for a low profile to be the reason why the compound security was below standard. 
Clinton claimed responsibility for the lapses, but tried to abscond personal blame by pointing to others, other professionals, sorry, in her department who handled security, security directly. Okay, number 11. She took Walmart because she was on the board. She took money from Walmart and never acknowledged it after. Between 1986 and 92, she was on the board, which had been repeatedly criticized for supposed anti-union activity. Clinton, of course, did nothing about it on a board that included John Tate, who famously said, labor, labor unions are nothing but blood-sucking parasites living off the productive labor, labor of people who work for a living. Clinton's 2008 campaign biography made absolutely no mention of Walmart, and even further, Clinton was described as a loyal company woman by Tate himself. Since you know, a paycheck is a paycheck, even when supreme lack of self-respect is running rampant. Okay, moving on down, her worst lies. Number one, dead broke. In an interview, Clinton stated that she came out of the White House not only dead broke, but in debt, something even the left-leaning PolitiFact found to be false. Sniper fire. During the 2008 campaign, Clinton said she came under sniper fire in Bosnia during the 90s. She went so far as to claim her group ran, quote, with our heads down to get into the vehicles to get to our base, unquote. Video of her actual arrival surfaced showing a very calm scene instead, and the Democrat would quickly say she simply misspoke. Lots of lies on here. Um, the few of the proud Marines, the secret emails, more on Benghazi. And then the quotes. These quotes are, uh, I, what I do is translate them for you, because what Hillary does is talk in legalese and democrat ease. So you never really get a straight answer, and, but you always know that she's lying. Um, some people have heard of all of them. Some people have never heard of them because they don't have cable TV or Internet. They only watch mainstream media, and of course they're never going to mention any of this. So this number one. Um, many of you are well off enough that the tax cuts may have helped you. We're saying that for America to get back on track, we're probably going to cut that short and not give it to you. We're going to take things away from you on behalf of the common good. The translation of that is a tax increase from Hillary of $1.3 trillion and spending that will be called investments. This is communist thinking. Always do everything for the greater good. The, good ju the end justifies the means, and that means even if people have to die like in Benghazi. Um, number two, don't let anybody tell you that it's corporations and businesses that create jobs. Translation, undocumented workers, illegal aliens, and the government create jobs. Next one is about coal and fossil fuels. You know those need to be, be uh, gone under her. Um, she says Catholics and Christians have to change their beliefs about abortion especially. We can't trust the American people to make these type of choices. Government has to make those choices for them. The translation of that is Democrats believe people are not smart enough, educated enough to understand what needs to be done to make the changes they want to make. Government will decide for the people. It's not just Democrats. It's also Republicans. So it's people that they just don't trust anybody to have any kind of brains. Okay. Um, if you have guns in your home, tell your parents to keep them away from you and your friends and your little brothers and sisters. That's what she said to a, middle, to a bunch of middle school students. The translation is the Second Amendment of the Constitution needs to be revised, eliminated, so the government can have control of guns. So, okay, there's a lot more of her quotes and translations. Um, when she voted to invade Iraq, when she screams her head off at military personnel or other people in authority 
Secret Service included. Um, and then this one, quote, I have to admit that a good deal of what my husband and I have learned about Islam has come from my daughter, because some of you who are our friends know she took a course last year in Islamic history. So as Secretary of State, she not only didn't take any courses on security, she was so busy granting favors and playing the pay-for-play game, being bought, that she learned what she thought she needed to know about Islam from a college course. Okay, Hillary's health, we all have seen what's going on with that, the coughing fits, um, the, she fell and broke her elbow, the blood clot, the fainting causing a concussion, the prism glasses for double vision, she's on a blood thinner, she's on thyroid medication, there is a brain damaged comet, um, and Bill Clinton says that the recovery took six months, and then everybody says, oh no, it was quick and nothing's wrong. And here's the major one from her own website, her accomplishments. She says she fought for children and families for 40 years. After law school, she could have gone to work for a prestigious law firm, but took a job at the Children's Defense Fund. She also failed the bar. Okay? So she worked with teenagers incarcerated in adult prisons in South Carolina and families with disabled children. It sparked a lifelong passion for helping children live up to their potential, except she has no respect for unborn children, the unborn have no constitutional rights, and she's supported by Planned Parenthood for her stance on abortion rights. Didn't tell you why she didn't take that prestigious job. It really wasn't offered to her. She helped provide millions of children with health care. Uh -huh. She fought to pass health care reform, Hillary Care, really as First Lady. When that effort failed, she didn't give up. She worked with Republicans and Democrats to help create CHIP, the Children's Health Insurance Program, except... The Clinton White House, while supportive of the idea of expanding children's health, fought the first CHIP effort that was spearheaded by Ted Kennedy and Orrin Hatch because of fears it would derail a bigger budget bill. And there's more to that. So, okay, she helped. She says she helped get the 9-11 responders the health care they needed. That was actually pushed by the other two, uh, Senator Schuster and, and uh, Gildebrand. They're the ones who got it through. She really didn't do a whole lot. Um, the 9-11 bill passed long after she had left the Senate. And, <clears throat> you know, there's the, well, whatever, I'll let you read it, okay? <laughs> she told the world that women's rights are human rights, standing in front of a UN conference, etc. But when you think about who she's taking money from, all of these, some terrorist state and actually enemy states um, who treat women under the Sharia law or Koran, who say they can't drive, they can't go out by themselves, they can't be uncovered, they can't, if they're raped they have to have four witnesses, and they will still be the one who gets the lashes. Um, they can't do anything. Okay, so she takes money from those people. She also, those same countries, um, she says she stands up for LGBT rights at home and abroad. Uh, she made it a focus of her foreign policy. So how come all these gay men are still getting thrown off the roofs by ISIS? How come in Saudi Arabia they're still burning people at the stake for being gay? These are the kind of people she supports and takes money from and then tells the people of the United States she's fighting for them. And then the next chapter is all about Clinton corruption from the Washington Post, from the Associated Press, from Reuters, financial services stuff, the International Business Times, ABC News, WikiLeaks, who's really letting some stuff out. Uh, all kinds of things about the corruption. See, it never ends. From Arkansas to New York, across the globe, 
She has accepted millions of dollars from multiple terrorist regimes, banks, and Wall Street. She might be the first woman nominated for the presidency, but she is also, also the only candidate for that high office who is running while under criminal and civil investigation. In fact, her husband and her were the only people in the White House who have ever been fingerprinted. So that nut's cracking, but it needs a lot more work. The mainstream press, always a liberal supporter, does not do its job as a pillar for the people, and that puts us in trouble. We don't need a liar, a money launderer, a sick woman with a Marxist agenda to lead us back to prosperity, strength, and peace. What I see coming in this election, by the way, is and the reason that she doesn't have to go out and give press conferences or rallies, the only couple hundred show up anyway, um, and that she can sit home for days and not do anything, and she's going to run around with Barack on his Air Force One, which we pay for in the month of October, is because they already know. They own the machines. Soros owns the machines. They know they can flip the switch. They're going to make the polls sound like it's a close race. It's very close. And, and Trump will win the popular vote, but she'll get the electoral college because they'll switch those machines on and off when they want. <coughs> so the, the possible outcome... The polls will be rigged to woo non-supporters away from the polls. They'll be rigged so people believe the election is close so that when Soros flips that switch, they can state the election was close and there'll be no problem. In the end, Valerie Jarrett, Obama, and Soros will still run the White House. They'll give America away to the UN, destroy the Constitution, and end our history as a free country. Um, the name of the book is Lock Her Up, Hillary Clinton in a Nutshell. It's on Amazon. It's on um, uh, Nook Press, the Nook under Barnes & Noble. Um, it's not on Kindle because I fought it 12, 15 times with Amazon Kindle, and uh, they said they didn't like what they saw in there because they, they thought they saw a, well, how'd they say it? They thought they saw a sentence that came from the Internet, and they can't have that. I was like, okay. I quoted somebody from the Internet who was quoting the Associated Press. It would seem to me that that would be not a problem. Um, you know? So, I don't know. I don't know. So I wrote them several times. We went back and forth, all of that stuff, and, and they won't put it up on Kindle. And I'll tell you something else that's going on with Amazon. Totally amazing. All those reviews that left, I've been fighting them like crazy. And I get this response that says, well, they, they might know you because we see common elements in your, um, you know, in your accounts at, at Amazon. Okay, so one of my friends sent me the... Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, how she forwarded me the email is basically what she did. And it said all the things that they had to remove her because of. And I said, you got to be kidding me. She once mailed me something from uh, uh, I think it was well, yeah, it was from Amazon. Um, and it came to my address, but she wasn't going to be in town, so she had it mailed to me. Okay, not bad. Not bad, right? Uh, so, hold on one second here. Somebody's trying to not do what they're supposed to be doing to this other book. So, let me get it up for you. 
So we can go from there because I do want you to hear some of the beginning of the America It Was Just an Idea book because it's it's the people who have read it, they just love it, okay? They just love it. But Amazon's just not going to let it be. Um, it's out there. It had a million reviews. Now it has five. And those five reviews have been there forever. So anyway... Let me read this to you, because just a couple pages, so that you get an idea of how it's written and what it's about. And we'll go from there. So it's, a, it's America, comma, it was just an idea. I was born in a country that was in between wars, a place where woodwork and homes were being painted white, an attempt at feeling whole and pure again after a devastating world war. Men were home helping to create babies and finding their way back into a workforce that was for a while mandated by war and dominated by women. My mother had worked in ammunition factories with friends who also lied about their ages and traveled away from their home to help the war effort. My father was an Army Air Corps pilot with four brothers who also returned home to a country in transition. My first few years were spent with babysitters and a grandmother so my parents could continue building a family business, striving for that elusive American dream. I wasn't born angry, nor did I know the history of my nation but I was raised to salute my flag, enjoy the parades down Main Street, respect and obey my teachers, never trespass, and to say the Pledge of Allegiance to a country who let me be born free. The conflict in Korea would take my father to war again, and I would stay up waiting for him to come home, not knowing the concept of time or the meaning of war. Televisions were making their way into every household, and the programs were simple, entertaining, filled with black hat bad guys and white hat heroes. It was only turned on at night, at least as far as the children knew, because days were filled with chores and play, often creative as toys were scarce and often alone, as friends were just as busy. If we wanted to play baseball or soccer or basketball, we rode our bikes or walked to the fields. Mothers were either working outside the home or being homemakers, a full-time job that didn't allow for car rides to find creative play outlets or satisfy a child's notion of what should be important. When my dad returned from Korea, the family restaurant business became a priority again, and as I and my siblings grew, we were expected to work as soon as we could, usually by 10 years old, and we were proud and happy to finally reach the age where we could be included and working. We didn't make a lot of money, nor were we given an allowance that allowed anything more than saving it until we had enough to put in the bank. But we developed a work ethic that stayed with us, an ethic that told us to be on time, give it our all, be proud of our jobs, and be grateful we could contribute. School was mandatory, and most of us knew what was expected of us. Grades were based on knowledge and effort, but also on potential, and I strove to show my potential and exceed whenever I could. My teachers were counselors and coaches, surrogate parents and disciplinarians, and we all knew that any misbehavior would not only mean a trip to the office, but also the dreaded note to mom or dad that said they needed to intervene and provide punishment. My parents were no different from any others and complied with that understanding. Because of that, most of us made sure we didn't get into any trouble and have to face those consequences. Every morning we faced the flag and pledged our allegiance. We didn't understand that pledge when we were young, but as we learned about the world and social studies and current events, we began to, at the very least, feel our allegiance and duty to our country. And we loved it. Church wasn't as high on the list as it was for many others because the restaurant was open on Sundays, but we did make sure to go on Easter and Christmas Eve. And those who weren't small business owners made up the congregation and understood why others weren't there. We never questioned why some kids went to a Catholic church and others to a Methodist, or why some kids went to a synagogue or a temple. Religion was personal and not judged. 
as long as that religion promoted goodwill, peace, and followed God. I didn't know or understand the differences in denominations until I was older, but I did know when someone had lost or forgotten God, because they were always on the wrong side of the law or humanity, always in trouble, and always avoided. My grandfather had told me I would be known by the company I keep, and I didn't want to be known as the bad guy or outlaw. Our curriculum through grammar school taught us to read and write, but more importantly, it taught us to think, be creative, be open-minded about ideas. Music and art were as important as math and science, so by first grade we all started flutophone, joined the choir or chorus, and maintained our physical fitness with recess and after-school sports. It wasn't until I was 13 that I began to understand the importance of American politics and the current and past events that defined who I was as an American. I played John Kennedy in a mock debate, something my Republican parents weren't happy about. But my opponent got confused and started using the Democrat talking points instead of Richard Nixon's platform. I knew both sides of the arguments and reveled in making my opponent cower to my words when he realized he was on the wrong side. I didn't agree with Kennedy's platform completely, but after that debate, I followed both political parties and listened intently to speeches. When Kennedy was assassinated, I instinctively knew my life the life of every American would be changed forever. I watched Jackie and Carolyn go to the casket and kneel. Teddy and Bobby accompany, accompany the hearse on the long walk, and John John salute his father's riderless horse and flag. No one could tell me why he was shot or who did it. Lee Harvey Oswald was the alleged assassin, but somehow I knew there was more to the story. Because of my education, I was already fairly good at reading people, the body language and words they used. Something wasn't right. I waited impatiently for the Warren report and read it over and over again once it arrived. My parents and friends offered no help and understanding. They were busy with their work or friends and had no interest in a culture they said was corrupt. My grandmother did tell me that she felt FDR was the beginning of a political world that didn't serve the people. She said everyone was grateful for the WPA program, but the people didn't understand it was a program to make people feel indebted to the party and that the war and recession were brought on by the same politicians who now wanted to be seen as heroes and saviors. My older grandfather said it began with Woodrow Wilson in the First World War, that Democrats were always getting America into wars, and then Republicans had to get us out. He said Vietnam would be the same, that Kennedy might have avoided it, but that conflict would be a full-blown war now that he was gone. He said, quote, mark my words, Long after I'm gone, you'll find that Kennedy's murder was done by those Americans trusted. Oswald said he was a patsy, and he was. This was the first time I remember suddenly being angry at those who govern America. Older friends were already being drafted, and we too often had an assembly to honor the death of a fellow student, someone's son, someone's friend. I wasn't against the war, but I also wasn't for it. No one could say why we were involved, who we were fighting, and how we would win. Our televisions were now filled with stories of the wounded, and the news programs became the center of the lives of many families. That's part of the first chapter. Um, this is a journey into politics, my own in many ways. There is a little probably, I don't know, probably a little bit of fiction in here. It's um, listed as fiction. But a lot of things happened, you know, that, that were happening right underneath our noses, and we just didn't pay attention to it. Um, when I was in the service, the televisions were always on. Nobody wanted to hear what, what they were saying because it was all about the war. We were losing. We didn't know why. 
We're supposed to be fighting communism, but the leadership in Washington didn't seem to know how or didn't truly want to win because if you think about it, a lot of them were already communists. So this was mostly for profit, like all wars are. You know, Johnson took over after Kennedy. I researched Richard Nixon as much as, and as much of his inner circle that I could find. I wanted to know who was now keeping us in this war or if he was the man who would lead us to victory or whatever so we could get out. I was very surprised to find his connections to Johnson, to the CIA, to Kennedy, and the big banks. My family members were Republican and though I would have voted for him, if I could, I was raised to think Republicans kept us out of war. Wilson had broken his promise to enter World War I, betrayed the country by starting the Federal Reserve. Johnson played a key role in the Kennedy assassination and his great society, the latest stage of progressivism that would enable a welfare state to ensure future Democrat voters. So why was a Republican president maintaining a war that was being lost? Okay, I go through much of that journey in here, um, trying to decipher some of those things, wrap my head around it, talking to people about it, working through an anti-war movement that I wanted to be a part of at the same time that I was a Marine, trying to understand the connections, but where was Agnew? Who was he? Okay, uh, 77, by the time we got to 77, remember who was president? Carter, the peanut farmer. Um, he was the fourth in a string of all these liberal progressives who would tax and spend Weak in foreign affairs, as usual. He gave away the Panama, Panama Canal, for instance. Okay, he'd gotten, I mean, we had FDR, we had all these uh, people. Johnson picked up where FDR left off. The communist takeover America has been going on since the Fabian Socialist arrived on our soil. You can look up on YouTube and see George Bernard Shaw in a very famous black and white video where he basically says, you're useless. If you aren't productive and you're over the age of 50 or you're under the age of whatever or you were born with a disability, it's time to get rid of you. That's Fabian Socialism. That's where we're coming from. Um, and, you know, I'm not a Bush person either. I mean, I, I know the Bushes were very involved with what was going on with the Kennedy assassination and the, and the growth of progressivism. Uh, I know that George H.W. Bush was there. I know what I know that Johnson had to take over so they could be prosperous because Kennedy was going to expose the IMF and the Federal Reserve. His very last um, speech was about exposing that, and he said, "In seven within seven days, I will tell you all about this, that, and the other." And seven days later, he was shot. So, you know, uh, <clears throat> I go into in this book things about um, bullying and racism and all the stuff that each time happens in our life, teaches us something, if we listen, okay? Um, I had a friend who was raped. I understood quickly what happens to women who are raped in our country and uh, if they do get to the hospitals. And now we see what's going on is there's rapes going on all over the place by these Syrian refugees or Islamists from wherever. doesn't matter really what country they're from. If they follow the Koran, if they follow Islam, they think rape is okay. I mean, you know, you have a 39-year-old guy raping a 5-year-old girl. Because why? Because her dress was so short she was asking for it. You know, this is what we want. Um, so I go through it. I mean, my friend was raped. I had to understand what rape meant. And who does it? And why? And it's not sex. It's, it's violence. Okay? And then I wanted to see how the feminists took that. How women's studies looked at rape. You know, in the old days, they were always protective now it's like well you know you gotta understand oh no 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 this is all just wrong it's all backwards and upside down uh 
to talk about honor. How do we teach our kids honor when we don't see it anywhere? Um, I talk about Reagan and when he got shot and what was going on with his vice president. Who was the vice president under Reagan? Do you even know? How come he was made vice president? What was that for? And, uh, and because I am a holistic health person, I talk about Hillary Care and Obamacare. Hillary Care was a thousand-page document, okay? Within three days after Obama had taken office, um, Hillary Care, or Obamacare was almost ready to go. <laughs> they just had to add a few more pages. That's all it was. Uh, you know, George W. Bush, everybody thought he was kind of funny whatever and a lot of people now I have made him into an icon don't forget he's really still part of the new world order he's part of what's going on with agenda 21 which is now agenda 30 from the United Nations he went back on many promises he wasn't sure of how to do certain things and you know he relied on on some people for answers but he really didn't we had a lot going on during that time uh, so we had George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush and we you know, the Clintons in between and the Carters before and the FDRs before that and then Obama after that. And I went through all this. I was growing up with this. You know, I, I tried to teach my kids what was right. Um, and I talk about what happened with Hillary Clinton again. You know, Bush was the one who spent most of his presidency or the rest of his presidency towards the end trying to get NAFTA through Congress. He began his... Uh, re-election campaign, believing the Kuwait war victory would help him to win. This was George H.W. Bush. But the fall of the Soviet Union, that relatively peaceful Middle East, and the victory in Kuwait made the economy more important, and Bush's rival for the presidency, Clinton, pounced on that theme. Now, believe me, it doesn't matter who won, but there are certain people the elitists want to be in office at certain times. Okay, now, way back when, when, uh, Hillary Clinton was the first lady of Arkansas. Uh, she went to work finally for the Rose Law Firm, and the Rose Law Firm is implicated in Whitewater and all kinds of money laundering. And isn't it funny that as soon as she went there, as soon as she became political, actually, she had her thesis paper sealed. A thesis that glorified Saul Alinsky and his rules for radicals dedicated to Lucifer. Okay, so, you know, I actually looked into Perot back then and then he dropped out I'm sure and I could see it when he dropped out I was a little old enough to see it then I said you know the man's been threatened something's happened because he would never drop out he was totally passionate about trying to change the economy so he dropped out he came back later but it was too late the elite money had already filtered everything they had to you know be done the Clinton mobs and that overshadowed Bush and Perot's votes did no damage so William Jefferson Clinton was elected. Another big thing. The first thing they did was complete the Bush's NAFTA agreement. <laughs> so you see, it didn't matter. It's not Republican and Democrat. It's who's a globalist and who's a nationalist. I'm not a Republican or Democrat or even independent. I call myself, uh, what do I call myself? <laughs> a constitutional nationalist. I believe and love America. I believe in our Constitution. And I also believe that if you go by those simple little things in the Constitution, just like we go by the Ten Commandments or the simple, you know, the pledges that we make, if we understand all of that, it's very simple and you just, you, it's common sense in the end. You know, I have to make side deals and do pay-for-plays and, 
and, you know, smear people and destroy people. You don't have to do it. So, you know, like, um, the Saul Alinsky there, okay? His whole thing is isolating the enemy, quote-unquote, and destroying them using collective actions. So, like, number one, let me just read this. Power is not only what you have, but what the enemy thinks you have. It's derived from two main sources, money and people. The have-nots must build power from flesh and blood. Number two, never go outside the expertise of your people. But the most important one that we see in play by the mainstream media and every day, number 13, pick the target, freeze it, personalize it, and polarize it. Cut off the support network and isolate the target from sympathy. Go after people and non-institutions. People hurt faster than institutions. I think Hillary uses number 13 to gain support. Um, or she did use it for sure in, in gaining, gaining support for her run in New York. And she uses her gender constantly. It's demeaning to women, but many women fall into the same victim energy and, and they feel compelled to vote for gender. She was touted as the smartest woman in the world, you know, something that has stuck with her forever, but um, you look at some of her decisions, all of her decisions uh, in the Middle East and her email server and elsewhere, I don't believe she's the smartest person in the world. I talk about unions in this book. I talk about uh, Bill Clinton's impeachment. The Club of Rome and where that fits in with Al Gore and September 11th, what that means and what that meant to me as I started to grow even more angry and more into that American that wants something different than what I'm seeing. Um, what happened in, you know, Gitmo and this whole thing with, with uh, Obama depleting the armed forces and I just go into all of it. So, um, we get to a point where, oh, and then John McCain, I don't even want to talk to him. He just got, he just got, oh, he just won his primary again. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't understand how people keep voting for them. Or is it fraud? Is it all fraud? And everybody just says, oh, my, I thought he was going to lose, but must be I'm on the wrong side again or whatever. I don't know what it is. They vote, they want to vote for Hillary. They voted for um, Deborah Wash, Wash, what's her name? I can't remember, Schultz, you know, Washerman Schultz. Uh, after he, she blatantly destroyed Bernie Sanders through, through fraud and deceit. Okay, let me tell you the very last uh, thing in this book, okay? We, we now have a choice between a proven corrupt politician or a man even the GOP machine doesn't want in the Oval Office. We have a choice of between more of Obama's policies, which are really George Soros's policies, or the policies of a man who didn't need to run for office, but forms his policies based on business acumen, international experience, and above all honesty. We have a choice, to cower in silence while our votes are stolen, or to show up and be as sure as we can that the thieves don't strike as they have so often done before. We have a choice between restoring an America with secure borders, good jobs, peace, and freedom, or an America overrun with migrants from countries that hate our freedom, our history, and our very existence. So what I'm saying to my podcast listeners, and I hope you do share this and listen to it again, we have a choice. It's this choice, this election, this year, that will determine if our children or grandchildren will ever have a choice again. So, uh, from the greatest country in the world, this is Raina G. Please share this, and God bless America.